This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Let me start here with uh, with mental health. Um, this is going to be a really interesting time. I We ended yesterday's show. The last two shows have been really emotional. We've talked about the, the murder of the uh, 16-year-old boy at uh, Keel Subway Station on Saturday night. And all of us can relate to... Well, either when we were 16 or having a 16-year-old or having somebody that's going to be 16 in, in the next few years. Like there isn't a person that isn't feeling that case and feeling those circumstances. I watched another television interview, the start of one anyway, uh, with the mom. And then I realized I didn't, you know, my wife and I were watching TV at the same time. We we're like, we can't do it. I don't know how she's doing it. Um, when you lose a loved one, we lost my father-in-law in the summer and there's so much to do right away and you're not in your right headspace. And, you know, that wasn't something that was as shocking and, and sudden. It's awful. It's awful losing a parent. And that's my first of, of four parents, in essence, to lose. But best of luck outliving me. Um, so I'm going to do that three more times. Hopefully not for a long, long time and hopefully not bang, 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 a bunch of them at once um, because you need time and space, but nothing like this. And I watch her talking and I don't know where she's getting um, the push and uh, and the strength. Like you've heard the phrase running on fumes for people who run marathons or play sports or even, you know, even in the workplace sometimes or running a political campaign. And that's what she must be doing right now. Um, we found out a lot about the person that uh, is believed to be the murderer uh, not only was he homeless, he was uh, he was violent. Not only was he violent, he was consistently uh, violent. Not only all of those things, um, but he wasn't supposed to even be in Ontario. Um, this person, Mr. O'Brien Tobin, was not supposed to be in the province. He had told a Newfoundland judge he won't be leaving that province. Criminal records showed he had 28 convictions for crimes in a one-year period. 28. I didn't stutter. There was an arrest warrant issued in April of 21 for breaching a uh, probation. Last summer, <laughs> he was ch- arrested on charges he'd assaulted a Mississauga man with a box cutter knife. They filed uh, a charge in Peel Region, and he pled guilty last September. Just last September. You know how fresh last September feels to us? And he got sentenced to 150 days. Well, if he'd served, even if he'd started serving, let's let's cut the difference and say it's half the month and he starts serving September 15th. Well, October's like October 15, November 15, December 15. He should have been out around February 15th, about five, six weeks ago. So I would assume he didn't serve all 150 days. Bottom line, let's spare all of us the how did this happen? What about him? What? A, where did he go wrong? Where did he fall through the cracks? I saw an ER doctor tweet this, and he did this anonymously, but he has no, he has nothing to gain by saying this besides being honest, because um, it was documented that the suspect accused in this slang was out on on a release. I see these guys. He writes, a diamond dozen in ER, mental health problems. No, just a criminal with zero value of human life. Police catch and release all day. They bring them to us to medicalize them. Well, they're sociopaths and nothing will change until the justice system is fixed. Who's more right? We can save everybody or we can only save some. Who's more right? We absolutely are allowed to put our safety, 
our safety and security and our peace of mind ahead of people who offend and offend and offend and offend. There was no saving this person, though he was 22 years of age. And again, I'm not terribly concerned about his origin story. I know we get fascinated with the idea of of, uh, narcissistic sociopaths and serial killer documentaries on Netflix rule the day. Great. Fine. That's different than us saying, let's let them out and wander the streets again. I'll read what he wrote again. A criminal with zero value of human life. I listened last night to a clip and I just sat in my driveway and I'm like, wow, what a contrast. And it's not that they don't do good work, but they're stuck with being honest. You ever know people that do good things, but they can't tell you the honest truth. I can. Our show can. Other people on our radio station can. People in the media can. But I heard somebody speaking from Cam H, the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. And fantastic work that they do. That's probably where you'd want to go if you had somebody struggling with mental health issues. And I heard a man, I don't know who it was, get on the radio last night. And basically say, um, sometimes fear of the unknown and fear of people acting strangely creates these violent situations. And I don't know who he is, and I don't know where he works, and I don't know where he lives, but I wanted to drive there and have a face-to-face and say, the nerve, the temerity, that you would say that. Then he said, you know what would help uh, a lot of these uh, scenarios, a universal basic income. Cam H folks can't tell you that there are people unsavable in our society. They can't. And so they won't. They're not credible when it comes to discussing something like that. If you need help, go there. Absolutely. But in terms of commenting on the greater picture, they absolutely disqualify themselves because they think they can help everybody. They'd be really bad at marketing if they said, hey, Cam H, some of us, some of you we can help and some of you are lost causes. But it's true. And we don't have to let lost causes. We got to determine who they are. We got to meet the people who aren't. And we got to put the people away who are simply unsavable. This man was. This man didn't deserve a 9th, 10th, 11th chance. Plain and simple. Um, all right. Went a little late there, but I uh, want to say that. Shiba Siddiqui joins me right now. Again, I think this will be a massive, massive issue. And I couldn't believe that. I'm sitting in the car last night and, and I'm all for You and I talk about mental health all the time, but um, your actions often speak louder than words. And there's no platitudes that that say, let's let maybe this will be the time we click with somebody like this. Twenty eight convictions in a year and he's wandering around with a weapon on a Saturday night and he killed this kid. And he was wanted in Newfoundland. Um, Never should have been in the province. No, never, never. And how many other people like him are out there? That's right. That's that's what. My next thought is, <sighs> silence. Yeah. Well, it's remarkably frustrating. <laughs> it's remarkably frustrating um, that we're here. And I get it. If that was your child, if that was your brother, if that was your sister, we had that amazing uh, exchange with the mom whose son is is just wandering around from somebody to somebody. This is when it was really cold in the winter, right? I think in early January. And I've still kept in touch with her a bit by email, but she doesn't know how to help him. He can't. He won't go in. There's nowhere to go. We don't have these institutions anymore. She'd sign up tomorrow if she could put him somewhere. We need something back. We need some kind of a support system for people who are in dire need of help. Even if they don't know it themselves, there has to be something that we can implement. Yeah, a middle ground, a middle ground that um, that gives people a shot. Because right now it's either jail or it's meeting them on the street. 
and the street's no good. There's too much temptation on the street. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. I'm so pleased to welcome on our next guest. His story's uh, amazing, and the fact he's willing to share it is is just as amazing. He's overcome homelessness. He's overcome addiction. Uh, he's thriving right now, living his best life. And his story may resonate with what somebody you know is going through or you yourself is going through. Daniel Schutt uh, joins me right now on Toronto Today. It's it's great to finally get you on. And uh, thank you so much for, uh, I think, for doing this in general, but just for giving some of us uh, our station art this time and sharing your, your story. Yeah, no, no problem. Thank you uh, for having me, Greg. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's a, it's great. Um, so you started using drugs twenty years ago, um, probably at, at twenty two, never thinking. Well, this is like you're fourteen or fifteen. This is what will happen. Life sort of comes at us fast, and we all make decisions. And it's a lot like driving a car. How did this end up manifesting itself early on? And and when did you realize you were in some trouble with it? Um, well, b- basically what happened was I, in my early twenties, I, uh, I was engaged to, uh, to, uh, my fiance who was pregnant with my daughter and we had a, a really bad breakup and, uh, I didn't do well with that. And basically, uh, plunged headfirst into, uh, into opiate addiction and very quickly went to, went from snorting it to, to needles. And, and that basically just started a downward spiral for me that, uh, it took about six months for me to end up in a detox and then, and then went to treatment in, in Hamilton. That's how I ended up in Hamilton. Was this sort of your trademark, you know, to be honest, what we see in TV and movies where you could handle it at first, you could sort of balance it, and then, and then things started to change? Yeah, I'll be honest with you. It, it was, it was, I was just so devastated from, from what had happened that I, I just I, – I really didn't care. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, I was – it was just, it wasn't like uh, I was doing it for fun and then it, it escalated into something. I just, it, it was like, I was in such a rough place that the opiate was really the only thing that I could take that would make me not have to feel the feelings related to, to what had happened. Nothing you know else, I mean? nothing else made it, made it better except that. Eh? No, no. Yeah. And there, there, you know, it's like, it was part, part of my journey, right? Because I, I had to learn, like learn certain things through that, but. It was, uh, yeah, it was not, not a good time. And I learned really quick that, that I, that I was an addict, that I had a, a te- tendency to, um, use substances to deal with trauma or, uh, you know, as a, as a crutch. How was it as a teen though? Because I always think, you know, we, we can't spot problems as parents. Parents sometimes can't spot problems from us. Um, uh, I, I would be the last person to say, I told my parents everything I did or everything I was planning to do or everything I ended up doing. So how was it for you at 15, 16, 17, 18? Were there, were there any warning signs even in your own brain that well, I, that, that addiction was there? Yeah. I mean, I, I was, I was a party guy. I'm a musician. Mm-hmm. Um, so I played, you know, I played music and, was a classic rock guy. So, it, you know, it, it kind of smoking pot when I was a teenager, dabbling with it, uh, this and that a little bit. But like I said, the, the addiction for me, it, it didn't, I never, it didn't equate that I had a problem until what happened well, with, with my, my ex and my, and my daughter. So before then it was just, it was like, you know, I partied like, like all the other guys partied. Um, that, but maybe there were signs, but I obviously as a teen, late teen, I, I didn't really see them. How, I was, how did Daniel, how did you turn it, it all around? And was it just one moment, one flashpoint, or were there just little baby steps along the way? 
Well, is it, turning it around, I, I was like practically dead. Like, it, and my wife as well. Like when we were out on the, on the streets, like it, it wasn't like some epiphany and I, I turned, you know, turned everything around. It, it got so bad that it, it was really, there was only, only one way to go and, and to try and do that. And for us, for me, it was when my, my father got our children, got uh, custody of our children. That gave us kind of, um, that, that was basically the kicker to, to try and do the work to turn, turn everything around. Because it, it's, it's the hardest thing. Like, it's the hardest thing I've ever done. It's not, a, it's not an easy thing to come, come back from. But having my father have, have our kids, that's what really, uh, really gave me the, the strength to, to try and do the hard things. Because it is. It's lots of little baby steps. Um, and it, it's not comfortable. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't feel good. It, it's not supposed to feel good. But if you keep up with it, the baby steps, it does get better over time. It gets easier. You get stronger. So, yeah. Daniel Schutz, our guest, guest uh, he overcame addiction and homelessness. Um, he's doing great right now. By the way, the photos of you on the CBC page, it looks like you could play, maybe not third line, but fourth line for the Leafs. Like like you, <laughs> they could yeah, use you yeah. for the playoffs and, and get out of the first round. You look you look good. Do you feel as good as you look? Oh, I, I feel amazing. I'm in the best shape of my life. One thing for me, like with the question you just asked, um, physical fitness was huge uh, when I got when I got clean. I mean, I couldn't do three push-ups when I when I got clean. Like I couldn't even like lift my body. But I had this thing, this idea where every time I would think about getting high or think about using, I, I would make myself do a couple push-ups, and then that grew and that grew, and then I started to think about using less and more about push-ups. And then started to incorporate other fitness. And I mean, that's been a huge thing um, for me being able to like for the bad days and, and with the job I have, it's been huge to, to be, to be in shape. Um, and it helps with healing all, you know, the biochemical damage you do in your brain by using drugs, right? Yeah. It, it, exercise is like a, a excellent way to, for me, anyways, I can just speak for me. Oh no, but it's a it's a great message for for so so many things, whether yeah, or, or, yeah, or not. It's right. it's about drugs or whether it's about anything else. So, the the crux of so many issues with homelessness, I, I often hesitate because I hate when we we stereotype and we put even positive stereotypes. I'm like, we put people in boxes. Canadians are like this, or yeah. you know, white people, black people, Asian people are like this. When someone yeah. says homeless people. There's a massive difference to me between someone like you struggling, and I'm going to say it, the, the the person that murdered the kid on Saturday night. I struggle with it, so I can only imagine you struggle with the definition of putting everybody in the same damn box. How do you feel about that? There, there is no one box, and and like like I said, like I I I I've been you know a victim of out there uh, as most people out there victim of some kind of violence. Um, it, it, it comes with, with what kind of goes out, goes on on the street. Right. It, and I mean, what, what happened recently was terrible and it, it's, it's disgusting how often it does happen, but you're right. There's no, there, there is, there's no baseline. This is a homeless person. I mean, on our, on my journey, like I, I met people that were in their eighties that were homeless that just for, um, some kind of weird financial reason they ended up out there. And then you do have the people that, that kind of want to be out there. They want to get high. They want to be, you know, rock stars or gangsters. And they want to, they want that. Like there are those people, but there's more often there's, there's seems to be, 
people from outside of that box that end up, you know, end up homeless, end up in in situations or like at different levels of the situation. Does that make sense? It does. It makes complete sense. I got it. I'm dying to ask you about safe injection sites. Um, I would have I would have been for them three or four years ago, and I'm not saying I'm against them now. I just want to see a lot more data to know that we're getting them right. I, I get it. You're, you're, go, you're using a safe supply of drugs and you're less likely to die in that time frame that you use them. But I don't know. I don't know, Daniel, if it's helping, helping people get clean. I know if it was my no. son or daughter out there, I don't know if it's cleaning people up. How do you view them now? I, I have mixed, I have mixed, uh, mixed views. I, I, I've used them um, myself, but, but they're not an avenue to get clean. They're an avenue to not die. That, that's basically like you're dealing with multiple things, right? Like getting clean and recovery is something completely different than not dying of fentanyl. And I think those types of uh, safe injection sites, they do help save lives, but those lives don't necessarily are ever going to see recovery because of the safe injection site. Does, does that make sense? It makes complete because here's where I here's where I stand, and uh, and and I, I again. You're going to know more about this than I am. And you're sure going to know more about this than, than politicians that haven't experienced what you've experienced. I think if we offer concrete rewards like housing, money, the potential for a job, we can get people clean. I don't want to criminalize these drugs, but I also don't want the status quo to be come and use day after day after day after day. Because yeah. you're right. They're not dying in the moment. But they are slowly killing themselves. They are yeah. slowly getting more and more into the abyss. You crawled your, you know, you fought your way out like a, like a, like a freaking tiger. But not everybody's yeah. going to be able to. No, no, and and that that's what really it hurts my heart because I've lost so many people. Like I can't tell in the hundreds. Of pe- I've lost hundreds of people that that have died from this, right? And it, yeah, it, like it hurts my heart. But it really is. It's it's not an easy thing to do, and there are some people that you're gonna just need to save their life, that maybe are never gonna be able to to um, uh, ha- never have the things in place to to get them there. But like you said, definitely mm. housing is huge. Um, it was huge for us. Uh, methadone is huge, like harm reduction, yeah. opposed to safe injection sites. Because I mean, a lot of people don't understand what methadone is. It, it doesn't get you high, especially if you're a fentanyl addict. It just stops the incredibly dis- debilitating withdrawal symptoms. So if you, you get in a program like that, if you, if you want your life back, if you want recovery, you can start to take those steps because you have the stability of the methadone. Like a safe injection site where it's, it's basically, yeah, come here. All the drug dealers hang around outside. You go there, get, pick up what you, whatever you want, and, and then you use, and someone's there to watch you, but it's not a... Well, it, drug dealers hang around. Muggers hang around. Um, oh, predator, predators and rapists hang around. Absolutely. And and it, it's, it's it's not good. It's not good. No, no. It, it's hor- like it, I, I've, I've literally lived outside of a safe injection site. And yeah. it, there really is no, it's really just, it is saving people from dying. But if you want my real opinion, it, it, we need to get, uh, we need to get the fentanyl off the street, and we need to get a safe supply for the people that aren't going to want recovery, because those are the people who are dying really quickly. And safe injection site. I mean, what if you do those? But the guy outside is selling lethal fentanyl. That's right. Uh, you know, it, it, that's not a solution. 
Do you, do you know what I mean? I do, yeah. I do, I do. Hey, I'm I'm out of time. I loved our, our conversation. It means a lot to our listeners. There's no question you're touching people. The more you say, the more you're going to connect with more people. So I hope it's not our last conversation. I hope also to shake your hand one day. I'm, I'm just, your story's inspirational, Daniel. Thanks for sharing it. Hey, thank you, Greg. You bet. Daniel Schutt joining us uh, from Fort Erie. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Let me grab one more quick call before we get to the uh, former counselor. Rob, you've been waiting forever, and I didn't want to leave you uh, without letting you have your say, but I only got a minute. Go right ahead. Mr. Brady, good morning. morning. Uh, First of all, I think our system is a little bit broken, and here's why. I think um, our justice system is releasing... uh, Uh, repeat offenders on bail way too often. That man that stabbed that 16-year-old kid at Keel Station should have never been out free roaming around with his lengthy criminal record. And I think the police, uh, I'm a proud supporter of the police, but you know what? There's a a small percentage of cops that abuse their power and they need to be investigated when uh, a complaint is registered against them when they've gone too far. That said, I'm a proud police supporter and I do believe that we need them on the TTC. Things are getting out of control, and we need to ensure that both police officers as well as um, mental health crisis workers are on the TTC as well, but we need the police on the TTC to protect everyone's safety. This is getting ridiculous. Right, and we talked to we talked to a person that turned his, his journey into homelessness and addiction around at 645. We're going to replay you some of that before the end of the show. And that guy didn't sound like he'd heard a fly. That's a stark contrast to the rap sheet of the alleged uh, murderer on Saturday night. That's a person who should never, ever walk the streets again, and he shouldn't have been walking them Saturday evening at Keel Station. Um, look, it's all very emotional, um, and we got major decisions to make over the next three months. Uh, I know this affected her. I know this will uh, safety will be, if anything, a more prominent issue um, amongst our city residents than it might have even been two weeks ago, if that's at all possible. Uh, she's a candidate for mayor of Toronto and former city councillor Anna Bailau joining us now on Toronto Today. It's great to have you on. Thanks very much. Um, you heard the caller right there. I, I think this is still um, so fresh in everybody's minds, and um, and it's 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 ripped most of us apart to think of experiencing it ourselves if we were sixteen, Anna. But certainly those of us who are parents. Absolutely, Greg, and my heart goes out to Gabriel's family. I, I think the entire city is is mourning. Um, I can't imagine a, a bigger pain than losing a son or a daughter. And uh, a senseless act like like this happening uh, in our city when so many people come to the city for opportunity and for safety, uh, it needs to end. And uh, and I agree with Rob uh, that it can't be an either or solution. Uh, we can't be just talking about um, you know the the root causes of of this uh, uh, of this issue like mental health and supportive housing. We need to tackle it. We need to tackle it strong. Absolutely. But we need immediate action right now, a coordinated and heightened presence of the police, the outreach workers, um, the mental health support workers. We need all hands on deck and a very coordinated approach, targeted approach towards uh, our TTC. We also need to fix and return the services back. We really do. We need to have make sure that people... uh, come back because it's safer. They feel the, the, the presence, but they also have the buses on time. Uh, and, you know, little things like you've heard me talk about the, the Wi-Fi on the system. You know, yes. let's do everything we can. 
all hands on deck. And, and absolutely, bail reform, mental health supports, and uh, 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 supportive housing, these are issues that will affect the, the TTC. They affect the whole city. It's not just the safety on the TTC. These are things that need to be targeted by the three orders of government. I'm glad to hear that you want to take such immediate action. The unfortunate thing is, is that the first time you'd be mayor would be about 13 weeks from now. And, and the same for the other candidates. Is this a stressful next 13 weeks in that it just feels like we're sitting in a holding pattern right now. We need Jennifer McKelvey, we need the current city council to make some big calls and also ask for help from the province and federal government on these issues. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, we've heard we've heard the premier commenting on the issue. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I say that, you know, we should spend more time uh, uh, telling us how he's going to help instead of telling Torontonians how he's going to how they should vote. That's the reality that we need right now. It's to focus on the issue at hand. And the issue at hand is that we need to fix the services in the city. We need to fix the city, the TTC. We need to make sure that it's safe, mm-hmm. that it's reliable. And for that, we need to have, you know, like I've been saying, a fair deal for this city, a fair deal. We need to make sure that the province is at the table and working with us on these issues. You're being very uh, efficient and proactive um, also when it comes to seniors. And and like, by the way, a 16-year-old safety is as important as a, a 76-year-old's in our city. We, we, we don't want people that have loved this city and gotten to live here for a half century to move because they're afraid. But we also you're also hitting on something that's really important, and that's their health. What are what is what are some some of the platform Give us some details of the platform that you've announced this morning that you hope helps improve the overall health of our city seniors. I, I will. But, Greg, one thing that I've heard from people is that they want services improved. They want pragmatism. They want people to come into power to say how we're going to work together to deliver better services. And that's what I'm talking about. Let's roll up our sleeves and deliver better services. Let's make sure that whoever is delivering these services and, and let me tell you now about this program, because this is a perfect example of how the city delivered an excellent uh, vaccine engagement program. We had one of the highest rates of vaccinations in the whole world. It worked. We had 600 ambassadors out there. What I'm saying is, let's make sure that we capitalize on the work that has done. They speak over 50 languages. They know the communities. They've engaged. We have 70,000 residents, senior residents, 30,000 of them that are over the age of 80 that live in 500 senior buildings. These seniors have been isolated. These seniors have a hard time getting access to health care. These seniors need preventive health care. Let's make sure that we bring the mobile clinics that public health and paramedics can do to do that preventive health care, to do the screenings, to make sure that they have access to the health care, to make sure that they don't get to the doctor way too late. Uh, that mm. they, they that we screen them properly so they have a better quality of life and that we alleviate the pressure on our healthcare system. This is the pragmatism. This is the service delivery that I think people want is and, and having governments coming together to make their life easier and more affordable. This is a perfect example of the work that was good work that was done that we need to capitalize, that we need to make sure that we're bringing the healthcare to 70,000 seniors in their own home. Well, two things. One, European cities have started to do this and it's been successful. It's created less of a flood to, you know, emergency rooms and doctor's offices. We, we always use the phrase, and it sounds like an eye-rolling cliche, meet people where they are, but that's this works here, and this is exactly what does that. Now, the obvious question, and you're going to get it, and, you're, and you'll get a lot of these type of questions the next three months. How much does it cost and who pays for it? So $13.5 million is the cost of the program. $6 million has been cost, has been 
paid by the province for these ambassador programs. This is a program that they've seen that is, is succeeded through the vaccination. So we certainly believe that they should continue to be engaged in this pro- program. $7.5 million is the additional cost. And I certainly hope to use the money that we're now spending on paying for the Gardner and the DVP to be paying for, uh, for this program. Again, this program will save millions of dollars in healthcare costs for the province. And I agree with the premier on one thing. There's only one taxpayer. And what does that taxpayer expect? It expects us to work together to deliver better services in the more economic, humane and efficient way. And that's what I propose. I know you want the province to to look again at the Gardner and the DVP uh, uploading, if you will, instead of downloading. Uh, but many people are saying that they're just not going to. They're, they're hit, the hint is there. How hard can you push them? How do you get a win out of this or even even a partial win? Uh, uh, Greg, um, you know, I, I'm running on it. I, I will have a mandate on it, like the premier, that he has a mandate to build the homes, that he has a mandate to build the highways. They have almost $30 billion on this budget that was just launched uh, for highways. This, these two highways are paid by the taxpayers of, of Toronto. They're used by over 50% of people that are not from the city of Toronto, while, we, while our services are being cut to them. What we need is a fair deal for the city. What we need is a deal that makes sense. So instead of the province coming at the end of the year with a check to fill our deficit, let's make sure that we deliver good services that at the end of the day help our budget. So, for example, we, we, we use that money to fix the DTC, attract a ridership back. We actually tackle more than $400 million that is created by the decrease in ridership to the TTC. We need to make sure that we have practical solutions and fair solutions. We need a fair deal for Toronto. This is the economic engine of this province. We pay a lot of taxes. As we've seen, everything has been going up. You know, the provincial and federal government are getting a lot more taxes from the residents of Toronto. We want to make sure that that money comes to the city of Toronto as well to make sure that the services are not cut, that their life is actually made more affordable and easier. I think it's a great start that you're putting tangible platforms out there, policy ideas that we can evaluate. I hope all the other candidates uh, start to match you. Thanks very much for the time this morning, and uh, I hope we get to visit in person the next couple weeks. Thanks, Greg. Always a pleasure. Anna Bylaw joining us on Toronto Today. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Scott Aitchison joins us now. He's, uh, of course, a uh, conservative MP and was a leadership candidate last summer. He's back on Toronto Today. Thanks for making the time for us. We appreciate it. Thank you, Greg. I appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. Um, look, it's it's a easy game to say um, there will always be critics of a budget. There will always be something. There isn't enough of this. There's too much of that. When it comes to the housing file, what do you see from what was announced yesterday? I see a government that doesn't understand the situation in this country. The fact of the matter is housing is in a crisis stasis in this country right now. And when, they're, when we're in a crisis, we pull out all the stops to fix it. And I, can, and I can back that up by simply pointing out the things that you've been talking about all morning. Homelessness is up dramatically all across the country. Tent cities in, in not just big cities like Toronto and Vancouver, but smaller centers as well. In 2022, on average, three people suffering from homelessness died every week in Toronto. And that right up to the first-time homebuyers. Young people, nine out of ten young people who don't own a home in this country think they never will. They'll never have that opportunity. This is a crisis, and we have a government that doesn't seem to get it. You have 
you know, the minister, I heard the minister of housing on there and, and, and the best he could come up with is, is some line about, oh, we're the government that has increased our ambition. How about results? How about results for Canadians who've given up hope? I don't see any of that. I, I do. I mean, some have said, ah, this will this is political suicide for the liberals. So why why not make it more? Uh, uh, why not make themselves more accountable? Why not reach out more? There's a huge age demographic they're going to lose, Scott, to your point. When you and I were 21, 22, 23, all we thought about was I got to get through university. I got to get a degree. I got to get a first job. I got to find a place to live, probably in that order. And there's a huge demographic that that thinks I, I can't I can't get this done. And if I can't get the third thing done, what's the point of the other two? Well, exactly. And this is what we've told young people in this country for decades. This is what you got to do. And the deal is you get ahead and, and they're feeling like they're not going to get ahead. Uh, the fact of the matter is we need an all hands on deck approach to this. A lot of people tell me, oh, the federal government's not really in the housing business. And we're not on the front lines of housing. There's no question about that. Municipalities are. But municipalities are part of the problem. And I, you know, this is one of the things I was tweeting about the other day. Uh, you know, Mississauga turning down, you know, high density residential right next door to multi-million dollar transit investment. It, it makes no sense. These government delays at the provincial and municipal level, particularly now add on average $200,000 to every single housing unit being built in the country. $200,000 of government costs. It's no wonder it's so expensive people can't afford it. And so my, our approach as conservatives, and you heard Pierre talk about this a lot during the leadership campaign and certainly continues to talk about. But if, it, if, if this truly is a crisis, we need an all-hands-on-deck approach to this. And a, and, and a federal government led by Pierre Pauliot as prime minister would actually tie every nickel of funding that the federal government gives to municipalities, infrastructure, housing, you name it, and tie that to results on housing, to, to reduce those costs that make housing more expensive at every turn. Uh, you know, the, the prime minister was just in Mississauga last year announcing almost $300 million for transit. None of it tied to results on housing. The municipality continues just to delay and, and, uh, and, and slow down projects and add costs. It's expensive. And ultimately, it's not the developer that pays that. Scott, it's the person buying the unit. Scott Aitchison is our guest on Toronto today. What's the culpability and responsibility of the mayors? Um, Mississauga has... Uh, Bonnie Crombie there. Um, we've talked to Guelph's mayor before, Brampton's mayor, Patrick Brown. Um, they they really do need to become a lot more proactive. They need to need to they need to worry about not the current homeowners, but the fact that people will be moving from their communities. And guess what? More people moving means less business. Less business means less service. Less people means less tax dollars. I, I don't know why most of these met. What what's your theory as to why they don't see the bigger picture? Well, I, it's not just mayors, and I'm not going to attack mayors. I was a mayor, and before that, I was a councillor. I, I chaired the planning committee in Muskoka for 15 years, and I'm used to dealing with people that don't like change, that I'm here and nobody else should be here. We saw that a lot on waterfront properties in Muskoka. You can imagine the vested interest there. I get that. So it's not just mayors. It's all members of council who, who you know, frankly, are, are inclined to support the people that don't like change because that's how they get elected. We need everybody on municipal councils to understand that this is a crisis uh, and, 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 and the entire system is set up to subsidize the single detached family home uh, and, and to support them. You know, tax rates, for example, in the city of Toronto, multi-unit residential is taxed at twice the rate almost of a single detached family home. Yeah. 
Well, why are why are the people living in apartment buildings subsidizing single detached family homes in Rosedale? That makes no sense. What would a Polyev um, government do regarding the immigration numbers that the liberal government w- wants to bring in? I'm not saying it's a sensitive subject because of any sort of you know ethnocentrism. I'm saying it's a sensitive subject just because of the raw numbers. Is that this many people are coming? Where will they live? That's the issue. Well, this is another example of where we need all levels of government working together. We need a we need a federal immigration system that is working in lockstep with the provinces to make sure that we are attracting people to this country that have the skills that we need. Ask Monty McNaughton about this. We need skilled trades in this country to build the homes that people need to live in. And so is the federal government working with the provinces to make sure that we're attracting those kinds of skills to our country? Are we working to make sure that we're getting the, the people with the skills that we need in this country up to speed and able to actually practice in their, in their, well, in their field right away? we got to be working together. Well, I know your leader likes his yes or no questions, so let me throw one to you. Yes or no, would those numbers stay the same under a Polyev uh, majority government? Would they stay the same numbers and, and targets that the liberal governments now have? I, I, listen, I don't know what the exact number should or shouldn't be. I just know that we need to be working together with the provinces to make sure that we are attracting the skills that we need in this country. And I don't know what those exact numbers are, but that's that's what leadership is. You work with the folks on the ground. You work with the provinces. You work with the municipalities. You work with industry. Uh, and, and you find out from people on the ground, on the front lines, what do we need? I got a minute here for you on on homelessness. Um, There wasn't much here either. And like I said, the language was really strong from homeless advocacy groups that there was nothing there. I I, I think we'd make the distinction between homeless people that are struggling and we'd make the case between violent psychopaths like the like the alleged murderer Saturday night at Keel Station in Toronto. And these these stories aren't just, um, you know, isolated to Toronto or the GTA. Those are different categories of homelessness but people said the government did nothing what was your observation well my observation is this we have a we have a liberal government that has a you know a bail reform system that that you know just churns violent criminals right out back onto the streets again over and over and over again uh, their soft on crime approach uh is literally leading to deaths in the streets of our cities and so it's 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 there's a mental health crisis in this country that they talk about and they pander to, and and they they have ambitions to sort out, but there's no results. Where's the where where's the results for Canadians who are mm. desperate to see results? This government mm. this government is long on talk. They 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 love photo ops. They love to borrow and spend, but they're less interested in the in the results of that spending. Scott, I got a blast. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks, Greg. Scott Aitchison, uh, Conservative MP.